Okay. Hey everyone, Steven from 11 Ish, a channel where we talk about lucrative investment strategies and opportunities based on the requests from the 11 Ish collective. Today we have John with us. He is a professional investor who hangs out with hedge fund managers, investment bankers, and he has a lot of great insight. Today we're going to talk about diversification, what it means, how to apply it, why should you use it, why should you avoid it at times, how do you maximize the amount of gain you get without having it being ruined by diversification. If this is the type of content you've been looking for, please hit the like button and let's get started. One quick caveat I want to point out is that my stupid camera missed recording the beginning bit of the video, but the audio is worth listening to. There's a wealth of knowledge in this entire content and the video is going to kick in. So please stick around. I promise you it's worth it. Let's get started. Today we have John with us, a professional investor. We have the fortune to have him with us because I want to talk about diversification. What does it mean? How do you apply it? And he is the guy that we want to go to to get this information, you know, because he's been doing this for years professionally, managing millions and millions of dollars. So his opinion has a lot more weight than ours, right? So welcome, John. Hey, Steve. How's it going? Good, good. So let's let's just jump straight into it. You know, what is your thought about diversification as a whole? What does diversification mean to you? Yeah, diversification is is a, is a good good question. So <clears throat> we think about diversification mainly from a few ways. One is, um, you know, if you're invested in an ETF, you're actually fully diversified. Basically, you're invested in pretty much every single stock uh, in the S and P or or the underlying index that attracts. Um, the reason for diversification is to remove some of the risks that you cannot predict. And what that means is, let's say you're, you're super invested in airline stocks. It's 100% of your, of your portfolio. What, the unfortunate part of that is there's stuff that, unfortunately, you can't predict. There's stuff like coronavirus or a big increase in oil prices, which impacts jet fuel, things like that, where whether you pick the best airline stock or the worst airline stock, unfortunately, all of your picks are going to be impacted. So the reason to try to diversify is to mitigate some of those uh, unknown unknowns, if you will. So hmm. if you buy, let's say, car companies as well, or perhaps railroad companies or tech companies, you know, when that big increase in jet fuel happens, you're going to see less impact. Uh, to your overall portfolio because maybe only 25% is an airline or 10%, etc. So those are the things that you want to mitigate. Uh, those are the types of risks that you want to mitigate with uh, with diversification. That's great. That's a really great answer. And But at the same time, the counterpoint to that is when you diversify, you have more consistent gain and you have much lower risk, but, but your gain itself is, on average will be much less than if you actually did end up picking the you know, the winning portfolio, you will get much higher gains, right? Uh, yeah, that's a pretty good point. So there's a, someone told me a quote, but basically the quote was, diversification preserves wealth, but concentration creates wealth. So the interesting part of that is exactly what you said. You know, if you, if you diversify, you buy this ETF that is just S&P 500, uh, over the next 30 years, let's say you're going to get the average of, of whatever that's going to be. So one way that I think about it is, Okay, let's take the, the ultra-diversified approach with the S&P 500. Are there sectors in there that you, you probably don't want? Um, so, you know, in 1990, 
or 1980s, it would have been pretty obvious to say that, hey, you shouldn't buy typewriter companies. And similarly, in maybe the 2000s, you could say, I don't want to invest in uh, newspaper companies. So mm -hmm. I feel like as you kind of go between the diversification spectrum of one stock versus 500 stocks or even more, there's always something that you don't want and there's something that you do want. Right. If you're not sure what you do want, then at least remove what you don't want, whether that's the equivalent of a typewriter company or the equivalent of a newspaper company. Um, and then at least you get that additional boost and those don't weigh you down. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. So to kind of summarize what you just said, you know, like especially when you're a busy investor versus a full-time investor, I mean, you want to have diversification to lower your risk because you're not babysitting all your stocks uh, because that in itself creates risk. But at the same time, you want to at least stay on top of the news, understand the current trends, where technology is going, and understand what not to include in a diversification. So instead of investing in the S&P 500, figure out what's in the S&P 500, take out what you think are going to be shit in the next five years or maybe like one year, uh, and that'll help you get a boost in terms of the overall gain without losing diversification as a concept. Exactly right, exactly right. Um, I mean, yeah, exactly to your point about, about babysitting stocks. Uh, you know, in the professional world, frankly, you're looking out at these stocks uh, pretty much every single day and you're speaking with the, the management companies and, um, you know, other people that analyze the industries every single day, whether it's actual professional um, equity research guys on the investment banking side or just analysts that, that look at these uh, underlying you know, trends of, of the market. So there's a lot of data there. Professionals babysit a lot of these stocks like literally every single day. People, frankly, that actually don't do this full time just don't have that time. And, you know, even in the last podcast, we talked about having an edge in investing. And especially when we're not professional investors, you know, like getting that edge is a lot harder. But that also means that to me, you know, I always advocate that you should invest not in necessarily what um, what people say is hot right now. Like if you want to pick individual stocks instead of creating a fully diversified portfolio, you want to at least invest in companies that in products that you really, really like or use all the time. Because that way you're inadvertently babysitting your stock. You have a better understanding of the product that you're investing in. Whereas if you're just investing in oil because everyone is saying oil is currently you know, in the shits right now and it's going to explode soon enough because that's inevitable. I mean, like, you never know when shit's going to hit the fan and averaging down and all of those plays will be a lot harder for you because you don't really care about what you're investing in, right? So that, that's kind of where I'm coming from. Any thoughts around that? Yeah, I, I, I would tend to agree with that. I mean, you as, let's say, you know, you're investing in this game company or this software company and then you actually use this the software uh, whether it's a it's a monthly subscription game or this monthly subscription um, SaaS product, like you actually understand why this product is good, you can actually understand, hey, this there's a lot of potential to perhaps for for this company to upsell me on additional products, and they're they're teasing me with these new beta features that I think are amazing, and I, me our company would absolutely pay a lot of money for. It. So that's where you actually have potentially more insight than the professional investors because ah, professional yeah. investors. Are actually seeing this from the outside and looking at yeah. the financials and they're speaking with some people but at the end of the day they don't understand the product as well as you yeah um so that's definitely one point uh, the other other side is to your point about the news um <clears throat> generally when you see a lot of things in the news a lot of people probably have already bought it's not always true mm -hmm. but 
you know, you, you don't want to necessarily buy into the hype. You, you definitely do want to think about would I buy this even if it weren't in the news? Is this still a good price to get in without it being in the New York Times or Bloomberg or some other random article? Those are two really, really important factoids. You know, I'm, I'm really glad that you uh, confirmed my approach in investing as a whole because, you know, I created this channel where a lot of times an investor comes to me and say, talk about this ticker. Right. And I do think there is value in us talking about individual tickers because, you know, we have the opportunity. There, there's a wealth of resource to talk about what a stock is. And then you as the investor yourself can do additional investigation because that's something you're interested in. That's why you're asking me about it. Right. So between A and B, you should have at least a little bit of an edge. That's why I created this channel. And then the second bit. Yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, like the way I'm looking at it is that by the time you hear it on the news, Yes, there's a chance that the price hasn't been built in, but it's also very likely that you're already buying on the high, which means that there is more potential for downside, at least for the next three to six months, you know. But if it's a good investment, eventually it should turn around, right? But you're taking that risk for the next three to six months. Yeah, actually, what's also interesting about our channel is it seems like a lot of people are asking about some of the smaller caps. Yeah. And actually, on that point, there's generally less investment knowledge of smaller cap names what that means is there's less investment bank equity research coverage mm -hmm. so you know the goldman morgan stanley jp morgan's of the world won't necessarily have an analyst saying hey this is how the company works this is a buy or sell rating so in that sense it's less well understood by yeah. professional investors another part is generally smaller caps have uh, trade less on a per day basis so what that means is like how much actually changes hands. If you're a professional investor and then you're, the fund you're working on you know, is, is a billion dollars or two billion dollars, um, you need to be able, even a 1% position is actually quite massive in terms of the numbers of numbers of millions of dollars that is. Mm -hmm. And if a stock is only trading you know, $500,000 or a million dollars a day, that actually can be a significant liquidity constraint. Yeah. So what that means is that the professional investor may not actually be uh, investing in that stock, which means that there's more opportunity for other people that understand what the company does, how it works, what the opportunity set is to uncover what is the true value here yeah. because it's it's a lot less transparent than with something like Amazon. So there's more opportunity for explosive gain as well. Exactly, exactly. I mean this is why you see um, you know some funds uh, structured in, you know, whether it's <clears throat> large cap, uh, global uh, and the mid cap and the small cap, and then some even micro cap. It's exactly for this reason because there's different opportunities within each of these uh, categories. Fair, fair. So let's uh, circle back to to the skeleton of this conversation. You know, when we talk about diversification, especially at a time like this, right? You know, shit hitting the fan is cyclical. Whether it's natural disasters or just the cycle of Great Depression and bubbles, I mean, those things basically are cyclical. They just always come, then they always go away, and they're wealth built, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And, you know, diversification covers some of that risk, right? But there's also opportunity being created when shit hits the fan. So do you have any thoughts around, you know, how much money you want to put on the side to so that you have this extra boost for buying on the dip? Yep. So, well, first off, I think bubbles are something we can generally only tell in hindsight, in my opinion. Um, That's fair. I mean, I think, I think the way I would characterize it is whether you're looking at a price to sales multiple or a price to earnings multiple or a enterprise value to uh, EBITDA multiple, any of these multiples, um, 
that's what I, the analogy I would use is, you know, you go into a Whole Foods and an Apple today is 50 cents. And then tomorrow an Apple is 75 cents. And then the, the third day an Apple is a buck. Um, and, and then you, you, you chart this historically. So you know the range of what Apple is. And then maybe the following week it's back to 50 cents again. So you generally know the range of what is, what is an expensive Apple, what is a cheap Apple. That's the equivalent, in my opinion, of like a, like a price earnings or price of sales multiple. And then, you know, just thinking about, okay, for this, instead of Apple, you're buying uh, one unit of earnings or one unit of cash flow or one unit of sales. What is the price that you're paying for that? Um, and then understanding that historical trend equivalent. Um, <clears throat> so to your point about how much to put on the sidelines, I think it's a function of of where that is. You know, when Apple is 50 cents and maybe that's the historical low, that's a great time to be to be buying more apples. Uh, but when an apple is one dollar and maybe that's the that's a pretty high number, um, that's a time to say, OK, you know, things are a little frothy. Um, not that it can't go up to a buck 50, but you know, just historically, maybe I should be 50% cash or, or invest in something else other than these, than these specific Apple slash stocks. Um, so that's, that's the way I would think about it. It's kind of the opposite of where the market is going. The higher it goes on a, on a multiple basis, perhaps you, you should think more about um, putting, putting more dry powder on the sideline. So if I were, you know, if I have a reasonably diversified, uh, well, I, I tend to lean heavily on the tech side uh, right now, I'm doing a little bit of natural resources because I think depression is coming. But if my portfolio is very much tech-heavy, uh, even diversified as tech-heavy, and I have this vision that a crash is going to happen in, let's say, the next, within a year, let's say. So how do you have an idea of like percentage-wise best practice? How much should I not be investing right now if I think a crash is going to happen and I want to be prepared to actually average down, invest when it's gonna eat shit? Uh, I think it really depends on the person. So, you know, a lot of a lot of professional <clears throat> financial advisors will say, you know, buy those with those Vanguard like 20, 30, 20, 40 funds and just like don't look at it and they'll, they'll <laughs> naturally adjust between equity and other financial products, mm -hmm. which which could work. I mean, at the end of the day, it's, it's, it's about how much uh, people want to actively manage their money. Some people just like do not want to touch it and just be like, okay, I'm just going to put it in there. And when I retire, I hope it's a big nest egg, which is, which is fine. It's, it's up to yeah. the person. Yeah. Um, the other side is, you know, if you, if you do want to, um, <clears throat> if, if you're pretty confident that, you know, something's getting worse and worse, there's no reason to not to just like sit back and watch the car crash, you know, happen slow motion. Um, <clears throat> and, and that's when to, you know, take some money out uh, i just want to interject you real quick though so like you know i i completely agree with where you're coming from in terms of if i think there's a car crash coming i shouldn't be holding i shouldn't be in the car uh but at the same yes. <laughs> but at the same time right like uh, at least looking at the market right now people are doing the hype play like crazy which means that there's a lot of easy money to be had and my perspective is that if I invest in companies that have good fundamentals and business value and you know the value advantage of these companies, if they make sense to me, then I can jump on the hype wagon. But at the same time, worst case scenario, um, 
you know, if I end up holding the bag while the dip is going on, they'll eventually cover because they have good fundamentals. That's that's why like I feel like there's still value to be gained, but at the same time, I feel like the shit can hit the fan any at any time. You know what I mean? So this is why I'm still holding the bag. <clears throat> I think that makes sense. I mean, to your point, like let's say you you know there's a stock that you really like, and in a, in a normal environment, you you would be like <clears throat> having a hundred bucks in that in that stock. Yeah. But you know that in the short term. There's also a, a some some type of other trading angle to it, whether it's hype or, or some type of catalyst. Yeah, I mean, there's no reason uh, if if you're okay with it, there's no reason to not uh, trade it a little bit. You know, maybe instead of your normal hundred dollar position, maybe it's one hundred fifty dollars uh, or something. Just uh, you know, yeah. so there's two parts though. One is kind of like the super long term portion of your portfolio in that stock, yeah. and the one is the the kind of shorter term trading angle in that stock. What are your thoughts around uh, reading? I mean, like, uh, I don't know if you saw the news, but there's at least one guy who turned a thirty thousand dollar Roth IRA into a million dollars. Did you see that article? <laughs> I did not see that. <laughs> in, in three months, um, and Jesus. yeah, and I mean, as far as I can tell, he's basically often trading his ass off, and <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like. Um, I, I can only assume he's doing it naked because otherwise I don't know how you can grow so fast. Mm. Um, yeah. I, I don't know, right? I didn't see the specific details, but like, where am I getting with this? I mean, do you think there's value in reading candlesticks? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, I... We'll just take a step back. Um, so I actually did the first level of this this kind of certification thing called the CMT. Mm-hmm. Uh, <clears throat> after I did it, it wasn't obvious to me that it was um, the mo- most worthwhile thing. It might be for other people. Uh, I think it's called Chartered Market Technician. Hmm. But <clears throat> what I came to realize is at the end of the day, you're trying to use those charts to understand uh, human behavior. Right. So, so if you see like a lot of volume and the average transaction size within that day or, or you know, that week, whatever, um, is above a certain point, then that's telling you that all these different people got in at this price and behaviorally, uh, there might be some angle to that. Hmm. But when I see like a lot of technicals out there, um, I, I don't actually read technicals at all, but when I do see like random articles that I do not purposely go to, and then yeah. it's like some random like Doji chart or hanging hanging man hanging Chad chart, it's like okay, this is just like, in my opinion, bullshit. <laughs> it just yeah. doesn't make any sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's fair. I read a couple books about um, day trading, week trading, swing trading, momentum trading. A lot of them do leverage the candlestick, and I mean there is a reason why the candlestick. And that analytics exists, right? Technical analytics exist, and and um, yeah, I think at least my opinion is that if you want to trade that way, it's very dangerous for you to just follow other people who tells you it's the right time. Like that is the epitome of if you want to make money, you gotta, you have to babysit. You have to do it in a very like you have to man- manage your bankroll in a very consistent way. You have to read it in a way where like you know. You, you have to follow it. If you, as soon as your emotion gets in, you're going to lose money so quickly. I think that's my personal experience. Any thoughts around that? Um, hmm. 
Yeah, I think I think you'll lose money regardless. <laughs> Without the emotion, <laughs> just training textbooks. I mean, if I were to hypothesize, if someone could, and I don't think this is that hard, just like systematically build, just get one of those technical books and be like, oh, top 50 technical indicators in the market. Okay, cool. Yeah. Let's build an automatic trading algorithm based on these 50 technicals. Yeah. I'm pretty confident that they will lose money. Like, they're <laughs> at the, end the of majority, day, like, right? The majority, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It just doesn't, I, I, I can't see that really working. I'll tell you this much though. Like I tried day trading for a single day. I've never felt so. I felt like I was on cocaine, man. It was like so crazy. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, in my opinion, there's there's a, it's your return on investment versus your uh, emotional cost or just like mental cost. Yeah, yeah. If you're making like fifty bucks a day and you gotta like be that stressed out, it's kind of <laughs> That's absolutely true. That is absolutely true. Going back again, as I understand it, you know, like. A lot of people's goals, professionally speaking, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, a lot of fund managers' goals is to beat the S&P 500 because if you can't do that, then why do you exist anyway? And to beat yep. the S&P 500 is super hard already. Did you say no? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. Uh, yes to both. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So to me, as a retail or a private investor like us, you know, I think investing in smaller caps like you pointed out is more likely for us to have an edge so therefore there's more likelihood for us to have an explosive growth potential but the caveat here is that you're still trying to beat people who are making millions of dollars per year it's an uphill battle right so like ultimately if you want a consistently predictable portfolio you probably want to just bet on S&P 500 but if you have an interest in investing and an interest in finding the edge then investing is probably like investing on a one-to-one -one basis is probably more for that kind of personality would you agree yes I would agree I think I think the reason why all these ETFs are pushed uh, by by all these different firms is they know the average person in America is not gonna you know read a 10k or annual report yeah. or a transcript uh, which is fine um, so that's why like ETFs are pushed to everybody just because like that's the average American uh, mm. But probably subscribers to your channel. They're clearly looking at individual stocks yeah. So to the extent that you know, they're they're satisfied with their research. They understand how the company works and frankly what it does um, Then they're then it's a great learning opportunity and ultimately it's a muscle the more you do of it the, the better you get at it Yeah, do you have any thoughts around? diversification long-term versus short-term investment strategies like if I just if I want to create a growth portfolio for the next three to six months, is S and P five hundred still the right approach here, or does that not make sense anymore? Um, I would say there's also other ETFs based on sectors, right, and also based on market cap size. Yeah. So if you so you, you, even just those two basic kind of dimensions, you could think about, you know, uh, maybe there's an ETF on S and P five hundred or U S stocks that are large cap, mid cap and small cap. And you might be of the opinion that actually large cap is going to do better than small cap potentially because the big cap guys are still pumping out a lot of cash and they still have money for advertising versus small, uh, smaller companies maybe are more cash strapped. So they're actually going to pull back on advertising and growth rates can slow down. That might be a hypothesis hmm. and that might be a reason to, to pick large cap versus small cap. Um, another dimension is obviously the, uh, the sector. So whether it's something transportation related, so that might be rail and air, air, airlines, 
uh, <clears throat> or something like materials related, like you mentioned, you know, maybe, maybe that's mining, et cetera, or <clears throat> energy related. Uh, and of course, technology, TMT, technology, media, telecom kind of related. So I would kind of use those two dimensions. And if you kind of plot all that out on a two by two matrix and you just think about, okay, do I like small cap transportation stocks or do I like mid cap technology stocks? Um, I think that might, that might be a powerful exercise to think about once you kind of figure that out, uh, which are the ETFs that I, that I can buy that would be <clears throat> that would be the easiest for that. And if you do want to do more work, then it's like, okay, not just the ETF that I can buy, but what are the perhaps top three or five stocks within each of these kind of categories that might be might be interesting to me. That's fair. So we throw a wrench into this conversation because this is actually how I quote-unquote diversify where I, I fully understand that it's really I mean I don't think any professional investor would call my portfolio diversified and what I mean by this is like I look for and I'm talking about my short-term investment portfolio here if if I think that a particular sector is gonna be hot I'm not buying the ETF of that sector right I'm basically choosing what I think let's say four company four stocks where I think is gonna perform very very well in that particular sector and that's all my short-term investment diversification is, just four stocks for mm. the best stocks I think they are. Do you think that's a mm. dangerous uh, approach to investing? I think that makes perfect sense, and I mean, that's uh, pretty reasonable. Um, you know, some professional investors might actually just have those top four as, as their sector weight as well. So <clears throat> that's, that's perfectly normal. Um, I would also note that kind of when you think about winners and, and losers in, in between sectors, um, it actually varies by sector. So within tech, for example, like let's look, let's look at search engines, right? Mm -hmm. um, pretty much like uh, a lot of these tech sectors, whether it's search engine, uh, social, etc., the winner takes a, a significant outsized portion. Yeah. And generally, with a lot of these these kind of uh, subsectors, the top one to two companies will take like ninety percent market share. And then everybody else has the last like 10% or 5% or even less. Yeah. So it, it, I think that's a pretty good pro pragmatic approach for tech. For some of the more kind of asset heavy sectors, so whether that's airlines or, or mining or things like that, um, that generally requires, the way that you, someone gets really big is generally via um, acquisition. So mm. when you do see a mining company that's like 30% market share, um, that is probably something that was built over over decades from like a hundred different companies or something like that. Yeah. So that would be kind of the two bifurcations of you know choosing the top four uh, across different sectors. That's really great insight, man. There's so many things I want to talk to you about, and I think a lot of our audience are very much interested in what you have to say because this is helpful in terms of helping us understand how to get an edge and how to invest. You know financial literacy right i mean this is super super helpful so i really appreciate your time um i think the next time we'll probably talk about how to sell at which point when you made a purchase like how do you set that point in which you should feel comfortable uh in selling your stock even though you know your instinct is like okay there might be a little bit more money to be had i think that would be a really interesting topic to talk about Okay, sounds good. And viewers, if you guys have any suggestions or questions or concerns, please leave a comment so that we can start an open dialogue. John and I will answer your questions as they come. Thanks for your time, and I look forward to working with you next time. All right, take care. All sure. right, thanks, John. See you.